Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, what a wonderful opportunity we have that we can gather here on this Palm Sunday morning to worship you, to praise you, and to contemplate and to reflect what Palm Sunday has meant in the past and in the days of our Lord, what it means to us today and in the coming days, even in the future, eternity with you. We come together gathering ourselves unto you to worship you, praise you, exalt you. There's no words that we can describe your goodness to us, your mercy to us, your kindness to us. Oh, thank you for the manifold blessing of health and strength, family, loved ones, the freedom to worship, and all the provision and goodness and grace. Right now, Father, because of all that our Lord Jesus did, the work of atonement, our salvation, but also, Lord, I just pray for peace. And I pray God's strength, healing, and that needs be met in the name of Jesus. I pray God healing and wholesomeness. I pray right now, Lord God, that needs be met and you touch your people today. Thank you, Father, because of the marvelous, wonderful name of Yeshua Amashiach, our Lord, our Savior. God's people said, amen and amen. Give the Lord a clap offering. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord. This is Palm Sunday and a happy Palm Sunday to you all that are here in-house and to the many that are watching from across the world. What a joy, what a privilege just to be able to go into the Word and go through some of the scriptures of what Palm Sunday is all about. I would be talking particularly about four important subjects. Today is usually called Palm Sunday. It is also called the Lamb Selection Sunday. But it's that and much more. The four subjects that I want to talk before, uh, that bring before you, is a continuation of what we have been doing about the anointing and the ointment. And the number one, I will be talking about the anointing of the ointment that is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Preparing for what would be Jerusalem and Golgotha, the cross. Number two, I'll be talking about in connection with that, the land. And number three, I'll be talking about where the donkey fits in. And number four, I'll be talking about palm, what it meant in the past, what it meant in the days of our Lord, what it means to us today, and also for eternity. Talking number one, subject to do with anointing. We've been doing, and if you missed out the study on the anointing and the ointment, you can go into our website, get all of the series that I've been doing about. But suffice to say, what it talks about in Psalm chapter 45, verse 6 and 7, talking about a scepter and the anointing. Thy throne, O God, this is Yahweh, our God saying to the Lord, the Messiah, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. But then in verse 7, 
Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore thy God, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness about thy fellows. The oil of gladness. We understand as you go into the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. At that time on the cross. It tells us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy that was set before him, the anointing, even while he was hung upon the cross, for the joy that was set before him, for you and me, endured the cross. And then, of course, sat down, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this passage in Psalm chapter 45 and verse 7 is quoted in the book of Hebrews. You know how the book of Hebrews reminds us of all things that were made. And talking about this marvelous gift, the Son of God coming to us, sent from the Father, higher than the angels, higher than the high priest, higher than all of the things that you find and would be the fulfillment of everything that you find in the Old Testament. But when you turn to the very first chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9, the author of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm chapter 45 and verse 7. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God even thy God hath anointed you with the oil of gladness about all thy fellows. Anointed you with the oil of gladness. What you find is so many sins that anointing, even when Jesus begins his ministry, even before he could begin the ministry, he went into the waters of baptism to fulfill all righteousness uh, again. It was John the Baptist protesting, saying, I'm not even worthy to unloose uh, the lace on your shoes. I should be baptized. And the Lord said, suffice it, that the righteousness of God be fulfilled. Would be an example for all of us. But then as he did that, the dove, the Holy Spirit, the anointing came upon him. The word Christos simply means anointed one from where we get this, from where it comes from the Hebrew, Messiah, the anointed. But there have been four passages in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talking about the specific literal anointing, both on the feet and on the head of our Lord. And when you find the first one, it is just even the, during the time of his ministry, even as he began, the anointing to specify greatest teaching, great his miracles, greatest work. But for this purpose, he came that he would go to the cross, that he would go to Jerusalem and fulfill all that for which he came. And then, of course, you find the other two to do with the anointing with the head. Uh, literally three times it's mentioned, two of them, the feet and one uh, that is anointed of the head by both Matthew and Mark. Let's start with the beginning. And this is the early start of his ministry. You find in, um, in Luke chapter 7, verse 37, verse 38. 
30, basically 6 tells us it was in this house of the Pharisee. But in 37, behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And in verse 38, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed, and anointed, and anointed them with the ointment. We did specifically Exodus chapter 30, verse 23, verse 25, talking about the sacred anointing. But here she anointed with this alabaster box and basically opens it and puts at the feet of Jesus and, and washes even with her hair. Verse 44 tells us in the same chapter a result of this, and he turned to the woman and said, Simon, seest thou, because he was protesting. Because does he know who she is? She's a sinner. Sinner saved by grace. He said, I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. Yet she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head and goes on to talk about the anointed with the oil. Now that's the first even as he begins his ministry. The second aspect that you find is literally counting that Passover in the coming days, six days before Passover. So the time is clicking. He's now moving towards Jerusalem. And three-fourths of the Gospels has so much to do with the end days culminating in the cross, his death, burial, resurrection. And then, of course, uh, before he is risen up, he gives the last final instruction. So that is basically how the three-fourths of the Gospels talks about. So when you look at the six days before Passover, or what, when the Messiah would be cut off, Let's read John chapter 12 and verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before Passover, came to Bethany. He's coming all the way from Jericho, and then it would be the ninth day of Nisan, and the tenth day, the next day, he would be going to Jerusalem. That would be the day when the selections of the lamb, and that would be the day that the Paschal lamb, he himself, would be inspected. So you find where Lazarus was to have been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And when you go to the next couple of verses, but let's go to verse 3, it says, then took Mary, this is different from the passage we read about this woman that had anointed the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, but here is again, but this is six days before the Passover. It's culminating. Its time is clicking. And before he could go to Passover, there's the anointing. While he is being anointed, the lambs in all across Israel is being anointed by the feet. So you find here, took Mary a pound of ointment of spinkinard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor or the, or the fragrance of the ointment. Now, when you slip down to verse 7, this is what Jesus says when someone objected 
what a waste. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept it. So this is very important. Anointed for what would be his final act, the work of atonement on the cross. So when you look at this, it basically resonates with uh, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3. Because the next day on the 10th day of Nisan, let's read, speak you to the congregation, all the congregation of Israel, saying in the 10th day of this month, that is the month of Nisan, this was the ninth day, the 10th day when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, he's fulfilling this passage. On the 10th day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. That is what happens in the total emancipation from Egypt, from Pharaoh. What you find is there are two passages. Luke chapter 7, even as he began his ministry. John chapter 12, even as Jesus is going towards Jerusalem six days before the anointing of the feet. And that very day, the feet of the lambs are being anointed for the very reason they would be basically killed and sacrificed on the 14th day. And so Jesus is coming right on time the next day, which is what we celebrate the 10th day of Nisan or Palm Sunday. But the third anointing is found in Matthew chapter 26. Let's read verse 2. Reading from this passage, know ye, the Lord Jesus says, that after, that after two days is the feast of Passover. So he's telling us to his disciples, two days from now there will be Passover. This is two days before Passover. Earlier it was six days. The clock is ticking. Now it's two more days and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now what you find is when you read what would be verse 7, you find this, they came unto him, a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head. Two of them, earlier we find, were on his feet. The last one that you find, that in John chapter 12, six days prior to his going to Passover, becoming the Pasach, the Paschal Lamb, here is Jesus basically being anointed, and he, she poured it on his head as he sat at me that very moment. The lamb in every home is anointed on the head that will be sacrificed. So this is important when you read this passage, because in verse 12 goes on to say, again Jesus said, for in that she has poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my funeral. Let's go back to verse 7 and then read verse 8. This woman came, poured it on the alabaster, on his head, and verse 8 goes on to say, and when his disciples, they were indignated. So what happens in this particular passage is not only the costly, precious ointment, but also the costly alabaster box. Here she breaks it. 
talking about this alabaster box had to be broken before the fresh aroma, the fragrance could be smelled. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance. So from his head all the way to this beard and all the way coming down, the anointing that flows from the head, pictures of what would be Psalm 133. When you find these three, this is very important in these uh, passages. But again, Mark corroborates what Matthew is talking about. So when you turn to Mark chapter 14, and let's read from verse 1 and 2, you find after two days was the feast of the Passover and of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. So here, the same as Matthew 26 says, two days will be the feast of Passover. So when you read in verse 3, you're going to find here, being in Bethany in the house of Simon, he sat at the meat, and there came a woman with an alabaster box, and very precious, she broke the box and poured it on his head. She's here breaking the box and pouring this on his head. And verse 7 and 8 tells us, simply, you have the poor with you, and it was objected, but who are you will you do, but you do not have me, and goes on to say in verse 8, I believe, uh, but what she has done, she's come forward to anoint my body to the burying, and verse 8 tells us, uh, verse 9, Verily I say unto whether, wherever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this that she has done will be spoken as a memorial for her. So all of this is culminating in two days' time to the cross. So before he began his ministry, to the point of six days before the Passover, to the point of two days, it was first the feet and then the head, anointed to be the one that would be slain. The lamb anointed. So let's do a number, sub, a second subject to do with the lamb. What I, to, what I want us to understand is that basically goes back to total emancipation for the people of Israel from the hands of Pharaoh and from Egypt. So the proclamation that God begins to speak to Moses and the first thing you find in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, what you simply say is the Lord, Adonai said unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, in verse 2, this month, that is the month of Nisan, shall be unto you the beginning or the first of the months. So it's not going by calendar of the Egypt, but it would be a new calendar for the people of Israel. This would be the month of Nisan. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now listen to what it says in verse 3. We read that earlier. Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel in the tenth month, that is the tenth month, the tenth day of Nisan, of this month shall you take to everyone a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. We don't have time to run through all of this. Let's suffice it to go down to verse 6. And in verse 6, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day. So this, the 10th day is the day of selection. The lamb has been selected without sport, blameless. But on the 14th day, which would be the day that he would be crucified, this lamb would be slain. 
You shall keep it until the 14th day, inspect it, get to know. But on the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it, sacrifice it, slow it. So you find that is the instruction. And so that is the 10th day, which would be the Palm Sunday, enters into Jerusalem. That very moment, there are three processions. One is a procession of all the sheep entering into Jerusalem. They are basically from this place in Bethlehem. Doesn't break the laws of Sabbath, 30 miles, but not from any other place, specifically reared in Bethlehem. And on that day, coming into Jerusalem, at that very moment also is this procession following Jesus as the Lamb of God comes together with all the lambs, and that ultimately points to that one personification, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, as he enters on that same day into Jerusalem. A third procession has to do with what people look to, and unfortunately and sadly, not just Israel, even church looks to, for our salvation comes from the Rome or the government, comes the Roman Pilate and soldiers of the Roman Empire. Three procession, three different meaning, choose if you will. The lamb that has been fulfilled, or you want to go to the old tradition, or to the lamb that is speaking about the one that fulfilled it, or thirdly, you could look to the government for your salvation. Israel did look to Rome. Israel did look to the tradition and did not realize the fulfillment is in the land. So what you find in this great passage is the way it refers to, as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, the New Testament gives us a clarification. Here Paul is saying, Purge you therefore out the old leaven, that you may be a new lamb, you are, for you are unleavened, as you are unleavened. Now listen to what it says. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. This is what happened for even Christ. Our Passover is sacrificed for us. From that day, the fulfillment of it, the temple curtain was rent into two. The holiest of all is being opened. And it was in AD 70, General Titus of Rome marched into Jerusalem and literally tore down the temple. And until now, there is no temple, there is no priest, there is no sacrifice. Why? Because Christ is the temple, the priest, and the sacrifice. A people is not known by their race or by their color. It's known by the relationship to God that comes through Yeshua Mashiach, the Lamb, the Paschal Lamb of God. So what you find is a very powerful passage and not every year like the old ways of doing it in the Old Testament because in Hebrews chapter 7, 
And verse 27, the writer of the Hebrews says, who needed not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for their own sins and then for the people. For this, the Lord Jesus, he did once when he offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 20, it goes on to say, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them, unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So he came in, this was the hour or the time of the visitation. He is personified the one that would come, but they were looking for emancipation from, from, from Rome. They were looking for a king that would knock down Rome and the cudgels of Rome and pull up the people to be all the powerhouse. Every nation, every religion, every culture has this ideology that they would be the fine and the greatest. My friend, without salvation, nobody is going to be the fine and the greatest. He came first as a servant, as Isaiah beginning talks about, and then at the end he comes as the king of kings and the lord of lords. So when he comes and they didn't recognize him, and yet there he was. And this is what John the Baptist attested about the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 21, 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. Now when you look at this, you're looking at the time of Jesus, but now take it a little further and go all the way in the futuristic to far beyond this world, but into eternity. And what you see is so astounding when you turn to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, it is a tremendous exaltation and adoration. And I beheld, John says, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, to the Lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. I beheld, and he says, in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb as it was slain, just in case... We forget why and how was it accomplished. Not our good works, not all that we have done, which good work is important for positions in heaven, but literally because of the Lamb that was slain for us. Right in the center of the very place of God, surrounding and the elders and the archangels, the centerpiece, the center of it all, is the lamb that was slain. When you turn to chapter 12, you find the Antichrist, you find the beast, you find even the serpent. And yet you're going to find, when you turn to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, the victory. It tells us, and they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, they loved not their lives unto death. 
This is very powerful when you think about this lamb. So when you go into the Bible from the beginning in the book of Genesis, going through all the 66 books, is the line running through of this lamb. And all that it conveys, uh, culminating in the one that is, behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the whole world. And so when you go into Genesis chapter 22 and verse 3, you're going to verse 8. Listen to what it says here. It's marvelous. God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went together. God will provide. Here is Isaac saying, We have everything. But where is the lamb for the sacrifice? God will provide. When you turn to verse 13 and verse 14, God did. Isaac was not killed. A lamb was killed for Isaac. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram that is caught in a ticket. And verse 14 simply says, Abraham called this place, Yahweh Jireh, God will provide. I want you to realize the way it goes from the beginning and goes all the way back, all the way to the end. Let's read Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12. What a marvelous way in which there's a loud voice that's acclaim, worship, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That is the second. First we did the anointed, the ointment that was poured upon him at his feet and at his head preparing him for what is to take place right up to six days before to two days before. We talk about the lamb, and the Bible is so full of this wonderful topic of lamb. Let's go to number three. Where does the donkey place a part? When you go into the book of Zechariah, he is a prophet that prophesied something unusually unbelievable. Because in the book of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, look at the way the prophet, this is the Jewish Bible, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. And exactly the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he took the cross, as he was carrying, even as he came into Jerusalem on that fateful day. But this is what he said, quoting from Zechariah chapters 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king cometh unto you. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's coming into your city. He's coming into your lives. He's just. He's having salvation. Lowly. Coming humbly. Coming down, pleading. If only you would open your door, I would be like the hen that would cover the chicken, and yet you would not. He comes lowly. He's just and having salvation lowly, riding upon a what? A donkey. He is king of kings that should come riding upon a white stallion in the power of all his might and strength, but first he comes for salvation. First he comes lowly and meek, having salvation. 
pleading. If only you would have. Luke chapter, you find uh, in chapter 9, verse 44, something, but it says you're having a salvation lowly, riding upon a colt, even the colt of a donkey. But you would not, he said. But I want to realize that immediately after this, verse 10, you see him coming with peace, but he would set that peace, that the desire of all nations, the desire of all tribes, the desire of all culture, desire of all nations, and desire of all race and religion. So there is an utopia, there is what would be Ram Rajya, there would be what would be the one that would come, whether it be in the Islamic or in the Jewish or in any other text. But look at the way the book of Isaiah, a book of Zechariah, talks about it in verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The chariot is the war machine. For lack of better words, in the modern 21st century, the word is chariots or the fastest tang that you could find. That is a way that the prophets envision because they don't have these master what would be war machine. But that would be cut off. And the horse from Jerusalem, everything that carries or that would bring in, that is basically communicates this war machine, whether it be high-flying missiles or whatever, from Jerusalem. And the battle bow, that is what would be the strength in terms of the most sophisticated weapon that destroys nations. Shall he cut off? He shall speak peace unto the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea. Here is the one that comes lowly, but watch out! His dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from river even unto the ends of the earth. That is who he is. Now look at the way in which it's conveyed in the book of Luke, chapter 2 and verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. That was how the angel Gabriel spoke or the songs of the angels to the humble shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. It will not be until the one that is the son of David, the one that sends from God, who has died for our sin, who came on that donkey that day and pled. He will come again the second time as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will sit on the throne of his father David. And there will be peace in the valley, and there will be goodwill among men. Until then, it is pieces falling apart till the Prince of Peace comes and brings peace. What I want us to understand is in a marvelous, tremendous way, you find this amazing aspect of the donkey being played out from the book of Genesis all the way in what you find the kings coming, like King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 33, riding on a mule, a donkey. And yet you find in Genesis chapter 22, which we read about 
sacrifice of Isaac in verse 3, how does he go about to the final sacrifice when you read Genesis chapter 22 and verse 3 on a mule? And Abraham rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey again and took two of his young men and Isaac with him. And so Isaac sees what's going on. He sees that he's going on a donkey, but it's all a picture of each one of us and yet Isaac says, where is the sacrificial lamb? There's a sacrifice and the sacrificial lamb being provided. But on a donkey, all the way to the place of sacrifice, Mount Moriah. Ultimately discovered by David. And then comes where Golgotha, where Jesus died. What I want you to realize is what a stupendous way this revelation comes in its fullest, but the embryo form of it is found again in Genesis chapter 49. And when you read verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, it's a marvelous piece. Is Jacob on his dying bed is prophesying to each one of his children about their future. But to Judah, from where Jesus comes, the line of Judah, he says this, Judah is a lion's whip. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and couched as a lion, as an old lion. He shall, who shall rouse him? Verse 10. The scepter that is from Judah shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Until Shiloh, he that shall come, he that will bring that peace, will come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Verse 11. Binding his donkey unto the vine. That is the way he comes to that place of that vine. And his donkey's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garment. You could find totally red as wine. As he hung on the cross. And his clothes in the blood of grapes. What a description. Coming on that donkey. On that Palm Sunday. Four days later on the 14th day of Nisan. Completely sweated in blood. And verse 12 goes on to say. His eyes shall be red. That is from this eyes blood. And his teeth white. The purity in the midst of it. To say I forgive. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. What a marvelous way the prophecies have been fulfilled. The anointed, the lamb, and then comes the donkey. Such an insignificant uh, animal plays an important part on that Passover day. Coming to the finality of what you and I have within us, with us the palm. This is beautiful because it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, but much more, it is marvelous when you read about the emancipation from Egypt and the law, the proclamation that has been given to Israel for seven days has to do with palms, has to do with victory. So when you read Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 40, you can read the entire chapter. But it says here, you shall take you on the first day of the boughs of, God, of goodly trees, good trees, 
branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Never forget how God led you out of Egypt, no matter how rich you may be. But remember that seven days is a reminder God's deliverance and salvation. And as you take the palm, it's a matter to rejoice for the victory God has given you under one instrument. When I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. By the blood were they saved. And without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission. So that being said, I want you to realize the marvelous way this piece fits in. To do with palm. So when you read John chapter 12 and verse 13, from the New Testament, John chapter 12, verse 13, this is again mentioned in all the other Gospels as well. They took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Good words, and there were those that meant it, but the others joined in with those. They felt their frustration. The aspiration rested on just one thing political or what would be social changes rather than eternal changes. So we fight for, and which is good, for what would be liberty. And I don't know how much liberty you could have, but if you don't have eternal liberty of salvation, that will come to an end. So they were the ones who were crying with their aspiration, deliverance from Rome, deliverance and emancipation from poverty, from all of the racism, from all of this and that. But at the end, when they realized Jesus was going to Calvary, Jesus was going to die on the cross, they didn't understand that. How will he bring liberty if he's not going to kick out all of the corrupt people and if he doesn't kick out Pilate and Caesar? They were talking, talking about political. And that day, on the 14th day of Nishan, the ones who said, Hosanna, were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Whereas others in the crowd, they wept and they cried, not understanding what it's all about until he rose again from the dead. But what I want you to understand is what an incredible way this comes to pass, that comes to a fulfillment. So when you read this in John chapter 12 and verse 13, they use this word, Hosanna, and the word is save us. And that is recited during these moments of Passover, beginning from Palm Sunday, or the 10th day of Nisan, going all the way to the 14th day of Nisan. Where it comes from, it comes from Psalm 118, verse 25. Let's read Psalm 118. And verse 25, verse 26, verse 27. Save us! Osana, I beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, send now prosperity, total, complete prosperity. Today, even Christians define prosperity as having your own plane, 
having the best car, having the biggest homes. So that's how prosperity preaches. I believe in prosperity. But it begins in our spirit, in our soul, and then in our body. But without the spirit being emancipated, you are dead in sin and, could, and would go to hell. So let's begin with the spirit emancipation. Save us now, O Lord. Hosanna, I beseech you, send now prosperity. Verse 26 goes on to say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Verse 27 goes on to say, God is our Lord, which has showed us light. What is the light? Bind the sacrifice. Bind that lamb. Bind the one that is being sacrificed with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. And every time this lamb is put into the horns of the altar, and that very day on the 14th day of Nisan, it was hung up from morning 9 o'clock, and at 3 o'clock, they had to cast and slit his neck and kill him. It was hung like it was on a cross. And this is so unbelievably amazing that you find this passage. So when you read this, you're going to find this is a palm. And it is due with basically God and the sacrifice. But let's continue to read about the Palm Sunday from John chapter 12, verse 13. But going on to what would be futuristic, way beyond the earth and the end of the world and everything to do when the creation of the world and new world and all of that, but in heaven. Let's read Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And what was incredible is this man says, Behold, John the Beloved, after this I beheld, and lo, a multitude, a great multitude, which no man could number. It doesn't matter whether you're from Africa or from the Caribbean or whether you're from the Hispanic countries or from Asia. It doesn't matter whether you're from Africa or whether you're from Australia. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter how people perceive you, but it matters if you have the Lamb of God and that you accepted the Lamb that was slain. He says, Behold, great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, purity, covered by the Lamb and palms in their hand, that is eternal rejoicing. When you read chapter 6 of the same book of Revelation, let's read verse 13 just to get a better glimpse. We'll come back to that in a moment. And one of the elders answered saying, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and who are they? In verse 14 he goes on to say, Sir, thou knowest, and he said, These are they which come out of the great tribulation, which have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. To get a picture of who are they, it is people that were persecuted for their faith in Christ, are persecuted for their faith in Christ, and will continue to be persecuted for their faith in Christ.
I like this. People say, save the whales. Why not save the donkeys as well? Save the snakes, save the birds. I love the animals. It is almost a crime to speak against people. It's a federal crime. I mean, just to speak negative about Israel, you could go to prison, you'll be called an anti-Semite. But did you know that people who tend to say, don't say negative, will be the people that constantly uses and abuses the name of Jesus from Hollywood to everywhere else. That's not a crime. And to persecute Christians, that's not a crime. I feel sad when people are persecuted. Whether it's the homosexuals, whether it's the Muslims, whether it's the Hindus, whether it's the Jews. But I want you to understand this. What the press doesn't report to you, the people that are persecuted across the world, even today, are the Christians. America doesn't make a boo about it. While we talk about protect this and protect that, almost everyone finds it impossible to come to America. In fact, Sudanese Christians blocked them into the Western nation. The UN sends everyone else except Christians. Oh, we got to take care of the Jews. We got to take care of the Muslims. We got to take care of the Muslims. We got to take care of the homosexuals. But Christians cannot. And I say this, I appreciate the Jews for standing up for their people. I appreciate the Muslims for standing up for their people. I appreciate the Hindus for standing for their people. When it comes to Christians, is he white? Is he black? Is he Democrat? Is he Republican? Is he brown? I can't. Does he speak in tongues? Oh, I don't care. It's a crying shame. I can understand others. Where are the Christians standing up for Christians, whether it be Lebanese, Maronites being killed? And right now as I speak, all over Africa, Christians are being killed. Not a peep from here in Washington. We have a big black caucus who are all powerful. Yes, they will march for Muslims in Nigeria or Sudan. But where for Sudan? Where for people across the world? Right now, there's a blasphemy law in Pakistan. It's been there. And everyone that gets killed with a sentence of death are Christians. They eliminate the Christians. We give Pakistanis such a lot of money. But have we ever wondered, excuse me, why are you killing Christians? It is the same across the world. In fact, the judicial reform by our great friend Israel included one. You cannot mention the name of Jesus, nor even speak in evangelism. You would be in prison. That's our great friend. But where is the voice from Christians? You know, I'm an evangelical and I'm Pentecostal. And yet I don't understand this. John Hagee stands up there and screams loud and clear that he's for the Jews. But when Christians in Egypt are being killed, not a word from him. Christians in Africa are being killed, not a word from him. The evangelicals stand up and wave a 
I'm a flag of Israel. Yes, I stand with them, just as I stand with the Palestinians, just as I would stand with just about anybody being killed, even if they be homosexual. But where is the crying out for Christians across the world even right now? It's sad. The words of Jesus ring so loud. They will know that you are my disciple if you love the Republicans, if you love the Democrats, if you love the white, the black, the brown. No, he said, if you love my disciples, that is the sign they will know. And how do they not know? Because we haven't learned how to love. So let's go back. Who are these people that are being persecuted, that are wearing white robes and with the palm waving out? Let's go back to John, Revelation 7, but let's just go to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. Listen to what it says here. And they cried with a loud voice. The very people who are being persecuted, how long, holy and true, Lord, will thou judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? We're being slaughtered. And this is what the answer in verse 11 the next verse goes on to say, And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them, this is the answer, that they should rest for a season. Just rest, because God is gracious. God is long-suffering. I mean, there are people willing to blow the whole world if you don't follow the ideology, but God can destroy the whole universe. He did not. And he will not. Just when they were ridiculing Jesus, Jesus said there are legions. Just one word from them. And this entire world would be spun into oblivion. But he chose not to. The long-suffering grace of the Father is reflected in the Son. Says they should rest for a season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, just like them, the people that are today, should be fulfilled or completed. God is patient until the last one of them, and God says, enough is enough. That number is full. The doors has been opened. Now it's come to a fulfillment. Enough is enough. Then comes the wrath of God. What you and I experience is not the wrath of God. It's the wrath of the enemy. It's the wrath of people who hate the Lord. And everything that God loves is portrayed in the wrath of the enemy against people. Against, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew as it is today, but mainly against Christians. Let's go back to chapter 7 and verse 10 and read this again. And crowd with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Salvation. Verse 11 goes on to say, And the angels stood round about the throne, about the elders and four beasts, and fell before the throne upon their faces and worshipped Yahweh. In verse 11, all the angels and saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor and power and might be unto our God forever and forever. Amen. Verse 13, 
And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arid in white robes? And whence come they? And in verse 14 says, I said unto them, Sir, you know. And he said unto them, These are they which come out of the great tribulation. And I washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That have been whitewashed by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15. Therefore, that's the reason why they stand before the throne of God. For all they have gone through, they stand very close. For the light affliction is nothing compared, Paul says, to the great weight of glory. So it doesn't matter what you go through. Think about this. It's nothing compared to that great weight of glory in heaven. They are before the throne room of God and serve him, serve him night and day in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. God tabernacles with them. And verse 16 goes on to say, they shall hunger no more, which means they were hungering in this world. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. There was a deep thirst and no one would satisfy them, but they will never. Neither shall the sun light on them. No, they won't be sunburned. They, they didn't have a roof on their head. Nor any heat. Verse 17 goes on to say, For the Lamb, we come to this word again, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. They shall, and he shall lead them unto the living fountains of water, and God himself will wipe away all tears from their eyes. It was worth waiting. The complete numbers come, and then you see the wrath of God. But let's go back again to where we began in chapter 9, chapter 7 and verse 9. Listen to what it says. I beheld a great multitude that no man could number, of all nations. It doesn't matter whether you are from America or from Africa, whether you're from the Caribbean or whether you are from Asia. It matters that you know the land. All nations and kindreds and tribes stood before the throne and before the land, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. Can you lift up your palm and say, I have a palm today. I stand in victory for what Jesus did. But a day will come, I will stand in heaven with a palm saying, victory, victory to the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus said, as often as you take this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. You know, just after this, Conclude before the conclusion of the service, we will be having, the weather is still cold, but we'll be marching around just one time with the palms in our hands. So hold on to your palms, but right now, we're going into something so beautiful. We have this, as we celebrate communion, say the word communion, it's an intimacy with God, knowing him as our father because of what Jesus did. As often as we eat this bread, 
and drink this cup, we do show for the Lord's death till he comes. So if you take this bread, if you stand up with me, it reminds us of the body of Jesus. It reminds us what Jesus did. We look back 2,000 years ago by faith, just like the Hebrews did looking forward by faith the same way. Every time the lamb was put to sacrifice, they looked forward to the day when the Paschal lamb himself will come. They looked by faith. We look back by faith to what already happened. We look by faith. And now, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are showing forth not only what took place, but that till he comes, he will come forth, not on a donkey, but King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be enthroned God the Father pleases to see him lifted up. Knowing no other name, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will come, bow. He comes even today, lowly and meek, if there be anyone that would receive him. But for us, our intimacy or communion with God eternal, immortal, invisible, and we call him Daddy because of Jesus. So let's celebrate this. And Father, we thank you for the bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus. And we thank you for this cup that we drink reminds us of Jesus. His death, his burial, his, resurrect, his resurrection. Thank you, Father. As we eat, we give you praise as we drink. This is the cup of blessing. May we be blessed with your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat together. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.